0: Hi and welcome back. This is Police Stories Podcast, episode 26. I'm going to talk about a series of short stories about my 28-year career in the UK police force across uh, three different forces. i um, been covering various subjects, as you've possibly heard, if uh, this isn't your first time. And if, you are, if it is your first time, then welcome. Um, downloads are going very well, thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really pleased with that side of it. As you know, we're on... Uh, YouTube and all the various uh, podcast type download sites, so um, yeah, it seems to have quite good coverage and and definitely the the listeners are building, so that's good, so uh, somebody somewhere must be uh, finding it vaguely interesting unless of course just one of you is repeatedly downloading it, in which case thanks anyway. Um, So today we're going to talk about another tough subject, you know, very difficult to deal with uh, easy subjects all the time because there isn't many of them in the police, unfortunately. Um, so today we're going to talk about one particular case, uh, which involved, uh, a suicide, um, using a shotgun. And in fact, there's a, a second one as well that I'll bring in uh, the same, same sort of uh, scenario as well, unfortunately. So, you know, if you don't want to hear about suicides, if you don't want to hear, you know, pretty unpleasant details, then now's the time to switch off. You know, this one won't be for you. So I thought I'd put in just a little warning for you. There'll also be some tangents, no doubt, and a little bit of uh, blah from me about various things, but particularly around perhaps armed officers and things, we might cover a, a couple of areas there. So um, we'll talk about the call today first off then. So I think last week we talked about i had been away on the surveillance course, and I've done that three-week surveillance course. Um, I won't ruin it if you want to go back and listen to that episode, but um, yeah, it turns out I'm not the best surveillance officer. Um but there we go, such is life. Um, now I was heading towards uh, trying out for firearms at some point. You know, I'd I'd had I'd been brought up around guns, shotguns particularly, sort of clay pigeon shooting with my dad and stuff. So I was pretty comfortable around guns, and you know, they didn't concern me. Some people did not, you know, want to go near them at all in the police and would avoid them at all costs. And, and others, you know, were sort of fairly comfortable with them, um, particularly ex-military types. Um, of which you know there are a lot in the police Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're good for um, an armed unit though you know they have to be very careful about the people they pick because obviously firearms in the military and sort of um, when and where and how much particularly you would shoot in the military is very very difficult uh, or very very different sorry to you know to in the police. this first story, though, so I've been on this course, and I've come back to teams, so I was back on response in uniform by myself, found myself single crewed, which you know was becoming more and more common even at though even at that point you know when we're talking now you know over twenty five years ago uh, now it's very much the norm you know for for some forces um so I was a single crew, so I was fairly used to it. I had it maybe three, three and a half years in, something like that. I was pretty comfortable, though, with what I was doing. You know, had dealt with quite a few things and not a lot phased me. And ultimately, if you weren't sure or you didn't know, you know, you could call up the sergeant on the radio, presuming that you had a, a signal, that is, and just say, look, I've got this, I've got that. I'm not quite sure, you know, what to do with this or how to proceed. Um, and invariably, you know, hopefully you would be getting some other units out to you if you're a bit stuck anyway. But on this day, I was single crewed, and I was uh, driving around by myself, chugging around the town, having a look out for anyone that, you know, might have been uh, looking shifty enough that would maybe warrant a, a chat and possibly lead on to a stop search, etc., you know, which again is really what you should be doing as a, a cop, you know, um, looking for that self-generated work if you've got the time, and I had a call, um, very, very rural location, out to a farm, um, it was a bit scant you know there wasn't a lot of details and as we've discussed many times unfortunately a lot of police calls come in like that or you'll believe you believe they're one thing you know and they're something totally different um so um this call was out to a farm in a very rural location and all we had was really there'd been some sort of an accident and a firearm might have been involved you know it, it was it was really sort of garbled and uh, the radio controller told me that you know they'd taken the call from a from a youngish sounding male and that he was very upset and they couldn't really get a lot out of him. They just got that, you know, dad was hurt and something about a shotgun, you know, and, and then just need please get here now kind of thing, you know. So so that's all right, you know, we'll work with that and we'll we'll deal with, with what we've got when we get out there. So I go uh, hooning out to this location on blue lights and even on blue lights, it was a good 20 minutes at least to get out to this place. And when I did get out there, I was met um, by this guy, and he was uh, fairly young, probably early twenties, something like that, maybe mid twenties. And he kind of looked me up and down, looked fairly, fairly unimpressed with me, uh, you know, and, and then basically said, "Just you, is it?" You know, and I was like, "Yep, just me," you know. Uh, and I said, "What have we got then?" And he said, "Follow me, or come with me, or something like that," and basically just set off across the farm yard, sort of sprinting off. Now, of course, again, as we just discussed before, you know, I had, I probably didn't have body armor at that point because I don't think you wore it as a norm, but certainly I had, you know, belt kit on, which is, you know, handcuffs and bits and pieces. So it always a bit invariably you're in big, you know, clumpy boots and things. So you're at a bit of a disadvantage straight away. And this guy was, you know, a young fit farmer and he was off. Um, He was off across the farmyard, So I just sort of followed on behind him. And I was relatively fit in those days, so I kept up with him. And I assumed, you know, we were just going around the corner of the building or something. Uh, but he just kept going. And I mean, just kept going. We, we went across probably two or three very large fields. And it must have taken us 15-minute jog at least to get where we were. So by the end of it, you know, I was in a bit of a state. But I um, tried to hide it as best I could. And as we sort of turned the corner into this field, into another field, um the guy started slowing down um and then I came up beside him you know and he said look there he is that's my dad you know and I could just see the bottoms of a pair of wellies you know in the distance wellington boots uh only the soles of them that's all I could see because um the light was starting to go and um so I thought right okay you know so so he's laying down you know he's obviously obviously been injured then I assume So I went running over. Now, bearing in mind, you know, I've been told there's some sort of an accident. You know, I don't really know what I'm expecting to find here. Um, And unfortunately, to my shock, what I found was this guy lying on his back. And he was dressed like a you know, classic farmer, wellies, sort of uh, overalls, you know, and like a barber jacket thrown over the top of a wax jacket Um, and lying beside him was a double-barrelled side-by-side shotgun, sort of old-school shotgun that, you know, virtually every farmer in the UK, I suspect, uh, has. Um, That was laying beside him. But what I could see, unfortunately, was that uh, he'd been shot in the chest. Um, My first thoughts were by himself, you know, that he'd done it himself. But, you know, that was not 100% by any means and you can never assume anything. But... Um, it looked like it had happened very close up. Now, unfortunately, what makes shotguns so good as sort of self defense weapons and also for pest control, rabbits, etc., is that, you know, short distances, they're very, very good at what, at what they do. And this guy, uh, I believe, had basically bent over, lent over the barrel of his shotgun and then reached down and pushed the trigger. It was a side by side shotgun, so you have a, a cartridge each side in the shotgun. And not all the time, but certainly in the older ones, you tend to have two triggers. So each trigger fires a barrel individually. Um, so he'd leant over this with his sort of center of his chest right over the barrel, and had pushed the trigger with his thumb, you know, and leant down. So the resulting injury was horrendous. Um, he had basically opened up his chest. It was like someone had got a giant ice cream scoop and had basically scooped out the front of his chest. His ribs were sort of blown out sideways, you know, um, on one side. So they're all sticking out like uh, they look like sort of crazy skeleton fingers or something. But, you know, I could clearly see there are ribs um, and his whole chest cavity was just opened up basically. And, and he was just a horrendous mess, you know. Um, and, you know, I guess had been here for a while, you know, he's very pale. There was absolutely no sign of life, as you would expect, unless it perhaps just happened um and I was I was a bit shocked you know I was taken aback because I wasn't expecting that at all and I turned to the son and I said who found him Or in fact before I could say who found him he again looked me up and down like you know I was something he scraped off my shoe he really didn't like me from the get-go for some reason and and said well go on then do something you know and again I kind of looked at the the guy and looked at his dad dead on the floor, you know, with most of his chest missing. And uh, I was thinking, you know, what is he expecting from me? You know, we have some first aid training, but it's going to take more than a paracetamol, you know, to bring this guy back. I just just didn't know what he was thinking. But, of course, what you have to remember is this guy has just found his dad dead in the most horrible way. So he certainly wasn't thinking straight, you know. um, You know, maybe he did believe at that point I could do something to bring him back you know but no one could have you know at that point it was very obvious to me but as I say he almost certainly wasn't thinking straight so I said to him straight you know look you know there's, there's nothing can be done for your dad and he he started you know kind of huffing and almost making out that had somebody else come you know then they would have been able to fix him you know it was, it was down to me I was rubbish you know he started sort of spouting off a bit you know or well, if they'd have sent, you know, somebody competent or someone a bit older, then, you know, it might have been able to be fixed or whatever. And that's quite tough to hear. But, you know, you absolutely have to brush it off because, like I say, you know, imagine what the poor guy is going through at that point. Um, farmers, unfortunately, we used to see quite a few suicides. And I think the figures across the UK, you know, I'm pretty sure uh, a farmer is quite high on the list of, you know, likelihood for suicide, have a really tough life, um, you know, financially very, very difficult Um, You know, people say you never see a poor farmer, but I think that's because you know they probably get infinite loans and and what have you. You know, some of them that are doing arable farming, growing crops, you know, they get one payday a year, Um, so that must be very difficult to budget that out through through the year. You know, and then if you are dairy, you know, you constantly hear about the prices of milk, you know, sort of falling through the floor. So they're basically you know creating this milk by the time they've packaged it up and sent it out, you know, they're selling it at a loss. You know, I mean, it's not sustainable. So Massive, massive financial pressures on, on the farmers, it would seem, and unfortunately some of them just couldn't take it, you know, so this was their way out. Some people unfortunately commit suicide in the belief that, you know, if they have a large, uh, you know, insurance policy or something, that... um you know the payout will will help their family and get their family out of debt but you know i'm pretty confident all insurances life insurances basically don't pay out if you've committed suicide you know because they're very aware that people would do this and i'm sure have done it in the past perhaps before that clause was in if if ever um so obviously you want to help this guy realistically can't do anything um i didn't want to touch him at that point because even though it, it does seem obvious what's happened, you know, it does look like he's committed suicide. I didn't know that for sure. I certainly didn't have the sort of skills or specialist knowledge to know that for sure. Now, I could have got hold of the weapon and with a shotgun, you, you break the weapon. So when you sort of push the lever, you open the shotgun, which is how you load it, but that also instantly makes it safe. So I could have done that. I had the knowledge to do that. The only thing is um, in the police, generally, they don't like you touching firearms at all unless you're trained, unless you're an authorised firearms officer, an AFO. You know, generally, you don't touch firearms. You know, you leave them for an AFO to come along and clear them. Or sometimes we also have SOCOs, Scenes of Crimes Officer, or CSI, Crime Scene Investigators, depending on where you work and what you call them. Some of those are make-safe trained, so they have the ability, they'll go to a scene, maybe a shooting or whatever, and once they've taken their initial photos and swabs and things for DNA, They'll then clear the weapon themselves, make it safe, and then normally it has like a green sticker or some sort of green tag or something attached to it, so that anyone at a glance can see that weapon has been cleared by somebody who's competent. Um, so, I mean, this is a classic for calling you sergeant. Basically, I, I wasn't quite sure where to go with it from here, but I knew I was going to need undertakers. But did we need, you know, a scene crime officer out first to take some photos? And really, I wanted to get the um, the sun away from the scene because it wasn't healthy for him to be standing there um so with some resistance he left but I did say you know look have you got uh you know a blanket or something like that that I can cover him with and that's a dual thing out of respect is one thing and certainly perhaps that's what the sun was sinking and there was a little element of that but for me uh from a work point of view it was preserving it because you know it was going dark no doubt you know this is the UK we have quite a bit of rain and uh you know if you start getting things rained on obviously it can ruin evidence so uh, anyway, son came up with a with a blanket um and i I stayed with him and it, he bought the blanket to me and then i said look I'll, I'll wait here your dad you know we've got sort of um my sergeant's coming out because generally a sergeant would then come out to something like that a a suicide or a sudden death just to make sure everything's done." Um, quite often that would involve CID as well, that would maybe sort of, you know, cast a, a glance over it, or maybe give you a quick call. The DS detective sergeant might give you a ring and say, just run me through what you found and what's happened, or maybe your inspector, you know, uh, because everyone is just trying to make sure, um, what's happened. Now the norm in this case is that, and certainly now, uh, scenes of crime would come out, you know, so scenes of crime will come out, they take some photos, um, somebody who's forensically, you know, trained will have a look at that scene, and just see in their own mind are they happy with that. You know, is that does that look correct? You know, certainly I believe he committed suicide, and there's some checks they can do, and they need to work out angles and look at the injuries and what have you to figure out if they also think that's true. Um, but invariably, as as a PC, especially one who's young in service, you are going to be standing on that scene now, waiting. Um, and you know we we were half an hour away on blue lights so don't forget your scenes of crime and your sergeant and the DS or whoever's coming out they're not going to rush and chances are they're coming from somewhere that's an hour or two away anyway so um, I knew I was in for the sort of long haul so sure enough I was there three or four hours before they came out but then you know they it's a bit of a circus then you know they had lighting with them um, once they dealt with the scene so they'd taken swabs they'd Cleared the weapon because the Soko was make safe train, so he uh, broke the shotgun, you know, and checked what they're specifically looking for. You know, how many cartridges is there? One in there? Is there two in there? Um, because until you know that second cartridge is fired, obviously that's a live loaded firearm, so you have to be extremely careful around it. Um, <laughs> So that was done, Um, and then again, they take photos at all stages, you know, they break the weapon, they show in there, and you can see on the back of the cartridge that one has been fired, one hasn't, so it showed that two were in there, Um, and then those are taken out, you know, swabs are carried out on those cartridges, on the trigger, on various parts of the gun, because... The son's DNA might be all over it, although that might be completely genuine because obviously, you know, it might be a shared weapon that they use around the farm for uh, pest control or whatever. So that wouldn't necessarily mean anything. But all those swabs are done and it's a very slow, painstaking process and that is taken care of. And certainly, I think we spoke about on another occasion, there'll be a scene log started. So I would start a scene log and that will record, you know, I am starting this scene at such and such a time and and it's me on location, you know. And then as the sergeant turns up, you put... Sergeant so-and-so on the scene, he's gone into the scene at such and such a time and everyone who goes basically gets their name, you know, recorded and likewise when they leave and that's just for any uh, coroner, for example, should it go to the coroner and generally um, suicides do because you need a verdict recorded, which in this case was suicide. Um, there was no signs of foul play um, you know CID will almost certainly go away and look at the sun, for example you know they 'll look at the financials, and I think in this case, they did find that the guy you know was was heavily into debt um, was up to his eyes in it you know and I guess it just got too much for him. but the son sort of you know they 'll look at the son 's finances because does he um, you know plan to benefit you know has he just taken out a large insurance policy and the mistaken belief you know if he was involved but no, none of that was the case. this was a a straightforward job um so a really unpleasant job but um one um, unfortunately you'd find yourself going to quite often now we talked about the, the firearm side of it and particularly the shotguns now shotguns are probably the most uh accessible weapon in the uk i would say you know there's thousands of them across the country at farms and things and it doesn't take an awful lot to get one in the uk you need you know a clean sort of criminal history you need a, a reason for having one you can't just have one because you fancy it or Home defence, you know, we don't do that here in the UK with firearms, so that wouldn't be a valid reason. It will need to be pest control, for example. And if, if you live in a, you know, a terraced house in a in an urban street, then you can't say pest control unless, you know, you have a friendly local farmer and you are clearing the rabbits from, him, for example. But then, you know, we will go and check that that's, that's genuine and that person is happy for you to shoot on their land. Um so there's there's some quite strict checks and rules in relation to, to possessing a shotgun. But needless to say, thousands out there. And of course, unfortunately, um bad guys, particularly sort of serious criminals, actively target rural properties when they're burgling because they want to try and get you know, they should be in a locked cabinet, but even so, you know, they can be defeated and, and those those bad guys want to get their hands on a shotgun because Once they've got that, you know, that's a valuable uh, thing for them because not only can they use it themselves in the commission of crime, but also they can sell it on, you know, and these weapons quite often are handed round and sold on. We've seen scenarios where um, there's like, you know, six or seven times a handgun, for example, has been used in a shooting. You know, obviously they can forensically link it to all these shootings because as soon as it was used, um, it was sold on to another group or individual who then also used it and, and so on, you know. Um, So, yeah, there there are certainly firearms available in the UK. It's not like the rest of the world and it's certainly not like America. Um, And it brings you on to the question of and one that comes up quite a bit is, um, you know, people are always surprised that UK police don't carry firearms. They're not armed as a norm. You know, your average cop is not armed. Yes, they'll have a taser now. They'll have either CS or PAVA, you know, pepper spray but they won't carry firearms firearm as a norm. Now, there are plenty of firearms officers here, but they're generally on armed response or maybe working at the airports or something like that. They're in something that's a little bit specialist. Your average patrol cop, you know, is not carrying a firearm. And that shocks some people, particularly in the US, where they're very used to sort of firearms. Um, and I used to quite often get asked, you know, would you carry all the time, you know, do you want to? And as we'll um, talk about in later episodes, I did, you know, go on several of those specialist units where we carried all the time, but as a normal everyday cop, would I want to carry, you know, 24-7? I'm not sure I would, to be honest with you. The biggest fear for me and for lots of people is what happens if the the bad guy or girl gets that firearm off you. Now, lots of people will be saying, ah, oh, yes, but, you know, you have special holsters that have locks on, you know, unless you know what you're doing, you can't get their firearm out in the first place. And, or you'll be given lots of training in weapon retention, which I have been through, you know. And yes, it's all well and good and certainly for your average person will make a difference. But someone with a little bit of knowledge or determined will probably get that firearm off you. And what about a scenario where now you're in, you know, a big pub fight and there's 20 or 30 people fighting around you and you're on the floor being pinned down, you know, or or you're fighting with someone. All the time you're doing that, your hip where your firearm is very obvious, you know, is exposed and anyone... As I say, with a bit of training and knowledge, you could get that off you. So, as a normal cop, um, it's difficult. Certainly, when I first went onto armed response vehicles, um, initially um, the, the bosses were very nervous around this, and firearms cops (ARVs) were not used for anything else. So, if even if they were short, you didn't get sent to that, you know, shoplifting or the fight or the domestic or whatever. If you were armed, now that got relaxed a bit as time went on, and it had to, to be honest with you, because most of the time resources are so tight that. You know, you can't afford to sit up there on some pedestal, going, "I'm an armed cop; I don't go to, you know, domestics or whatever." Because um, the reality is, you might have to. Invariably, we would try and back other units to these jobs rather than being the first cop that goes to the fight or whatever. We would rather go along and, and back up officers that are already there because it's a lot easier to deal with like that coming in um, as a as a secondary rather than the initial. Um, so that's the big concern. I'm not convinced that um UK police will ever permanently carry firearms I don't think it'll happen I think the vast majority I reckon probably 60 or 80% of UK cops do not want to carry full time you know um so I don't think uh I don't think it'll happen but you know I have been wrong before you never know um so we we're, talk- we're going to talk about a second scenario as well um when I was on uh, ARVs quite often a thing you would be called to is to clear weapons. You know, we've already talked about only trained cops were allowed to go and actually make weapons safe. And I was called to a a second suicide some years later, again with a shotgun, so I knew it was going to be, you know, a mess, quite frankly. And I went to a a house and uh, a very sad case, a young lad, he was only 19, he'd started um, shooting with his dad, clay pigeons, uh, and seemingly enjoyed it um, he's a really bright young lad, comes from a really decent background, really wanted to get on in life, you know, um, unlike some people, you know, but he was, he was really, really keen and, uh, had the sort of full support of his family and everything he did. He went off to university and he was fully expected to do really well. Well, he did do really well, you know, he, he was up for, I think, something like 10 A levels, which is, you know, the sort of exams you take at the end of those courses, um, well, either A levels or, or degrees at university, but, I think initially um, he was waiting for the results of his A-levels and he'd applied to his university. I think he was intending to be a doctor or something. Um, And he'd taken 10 A-levels, which is a lot, you know, and um, uh, he was expecting to, you know, he was predicted to get 10 A's, um, which is obviously the top mark. uh, And that's what he really needed to get into his university of choice. Well, unfortunately, he ended up getting something like, I'm sure it was like he got eight A's and two B's or something like that you know it was it was hardly anything it was a blip you know it was absolutely nothing but to him as a 19 year old who was all about his sort of academic side of things um, it was the world and I still find it hard to believe that he uh, you know chose to take his own life uh, because of of how he he felt he'd failed you know, now whether there was a lot of pressure on him at home to do well or something, but I mean I spoke to his parents at length and I, I didn't get that impression. I mean maybe it was, but I honestly didn't feel it. So really, really terrible case, especially when young people are involved like this. We were called as ARVs to clear the weapon. Now this guy, he'd got the shotgun from his dad's safe that was under the stairs and he'd uh loaded just one barrel. It was an over and under twelve bore shotgun and it had a single trigger. Um, and normally the single trigger on those scenarios fires both barrels, uh, consecutively, you know, one after another. Um, and that's, I think the case with this one, but he just put one cartridge in it. He'd sat on his bed at home in in his bedroom, classic sort of, you know, youngster's room with innocent posters up on the wall of, you know, his favorite football club and, and, you know, some bands he liked or whatever, you know, it, it was like any other sort of kids, um, bedroom you'd find at that time you know when perhaps life was a bit more innocent you know in the days before mobile phones or you know probably smartphones certainly and you know, everyone living on the internet like we do now um and he'd lent over this shotgun and he put the barrel on his mouth uh, and pulled the trigger and you know if the last one was devastating with the with the chest shot from the farmer it was this one was absolutely horrendous you know um It had completely, you know, the front of his face didn't look too different because the barrel had gone some way into his mouth, but the entire back of his head was open. You know, it had literally exploded. I mean, you can't put it any other way. You know, there's no way to dress it up. The back of his head was completely open to the elements. It had this hole, you know, sort of as, as big as both my fists together, you know, massive, massive exit wound. And most of his head and the contents of his head were sort of splattered behind him up the wall and on the ceiling it's a terrible terrible scene and we had to make that weapon safe so you can't be pretty about it there's no way of of nicely dealing with this Um, we had to basically one of us had to get hold of his shoulders Um, now bear in mind we didn't know at this point that if there was a second cartridge in there so again potentially this is a live weapon so you need to be very careful one of uh, my colleagues got hold of his shoulders and I got hold of the shotgun, being careful not to touch the fig- the, the trigger. This is once, by the way, I'd point out that it, all the things we talked about earlier have come in. So Soko have been in, all the crime scene photos have been taken, the swabs and all that stuff's been dealt with. Now they need to move on to the next stage where they break the weapon, you know, open it to see what's in there and stuff. And that's where they were using us for because the Soko wasn't trained to make safe. So we, uh, I got hold of the shotgun, And as delicately as I could, but I'm telling you, you know, you couldn't be delicate. It needs a little bit of brute force to extract it from what was left of his mouth. And um, having pulled the shotgun out, you know, he was kind of gently laid down on his bed. And then photos were taken as we kind of uh, opened the weapon to to show the single cartridge in there. Um, And then the sort of forensic process continued, basically. Um, really, really unpleasant. I, spelt, I spent some time afterwards, a good half an hour or so, talking to the parents who were downstairs and uh, I really felt for them. You know, I'm not sure, and I, and I appreciate people that commit suicide probably are beyond caring about anything. I assume that's where you get to. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of people, if they knew what it would do to the people that were left behind, they would never consider it. You know, because... Those parents, I never saw them again after that day, but I don't think they would have ever got over that, you know. And certainly in those early days, I had real concerns that, you know, one or both of them would do something to themselves because they were just beyond distraught. You know, I can't tell you how upset they were and just couldn't understand it. And that was the big thing. There was no note left or anything. The assumption was, because again, they did all the background checks eventually into, you know, his finances and was he involved in drugs. Had he split up with a girlfriend? None of that, you know, and all they could find at all was the fact that he had, you know, got two B's, you know, which gave him eight A's and two B's rather than 10 A's in, in A levels, which meant he probably couldn't go to the university he wanted. Although I think actually probably could have, uh, you know, um, so just a terrible, terrible waste. And I really, really felt for that family. Um but unfortunately, you know, you have to move on and, and you can then, this is where it's really difficult. You can deal with a job like that and then you can go out to a spitting, fighting, drunk nightmare who's absolutely enraged because his neighbours parked across his driveway. Do you know what I mean? And and you really want to get hold of these people and literally shake them and say, have you any idea what I've just been dealing with? You know, you know, I quite frankly i don't give a damn about your issue it's so minor and low level and you've made such a big thing out about it you know there's people out there who actually need our help um and of course you classic that you'd get the the thing thrown at you all the time why don't you get a real job why don't you go and stop some criminals you know uh you'd be like well i would but unfortunately i'm here dealing with an idiot like you you know and that's the thing that's what these people don't get. You know, they call you about some minor neighbour dispute. You know, the neighbours cut their hedge. They can't just talk to their neighbour and have an adult conversation and sort it out. They have to ring the police. And while we're dealing with that, you know, someone's being attacked. Um So very frustrating. But you have to be able to switch in the police between those terrible things that have almost certainly shocked you as a human to then be able to move on to these people and not take it out on them. Not always easy and not always possible, I can tell you. But... Uh, that's the job you signed up for um, and if you don't like it or you can't deal with it you need to be finding another job it's as it's as simple as that harsh as it may be anyway thanks for listening hope you found it interesting the end of episode 26 uh, we'll be moving on next week I think next week we're going to start into my initial firearms course but I will um, I'll have to check on my list and see what we're moving on to but either way hopefully you find it interesting Thanks very much for coming back. You take it easy and have a good week. Cheers, bye.